Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. We've been walking through a study on the book of Job asking, where is God in my suffering? And this week, in our second episode, we're going to be looking at the first words Job chooses to speak in chapter 3 that comes to us as a lament. Lament is somewhat in vogue these days, and for good reasons. It's a powerful literary form found throughout the Psalms. Yet as we journey with Job, this episode is going to explore how uncomfortably raw genuine lament sounds. It's uncomfortable to sit with someone in suffering, and even more uncomfortable to hear the true words of their pain. Yet if we are ever to hope to heal in our suffering, the book of Job is going to challenge us that we too must pick up this ancient tradition and speak our pain. So this episode is for anyone interested in the costly act of lament that will start us on our own journeys towards an encounter with God. So one of the great literary representations of the book of Job comes in the Pulitzer Prize-winning play J.B., written by Archibald McLeish. Now, McLeish was an interesting man. Born outside of Chicago, he would serve in World War I before joining the illustrious literary community of Paris in the Roaring Twenties, and only later would he become the Librarian of Congress when he returned to the United States. Yet, after the overwhelming toll of World War II, McLeish found himself pondering the Book of Job. In his own lifetime, he'd seen how the Great Depression and two world wars had torn apart the hopeful optimism of the 19th century. Yet, America was now blazing through the success of the 1950s, and so McLeish opens his play in this way. Two men are standing in front of circus stalls as the curtain goes up. One is called Mr. Zeus, clearly a play on the Greek god Zeus, and the other Mr. Nichols, a play on this old formulation of Satan as Old Nick. The two are discussing the drama of Job that is about to unfold on stage, but before it begins, they must decide if there is still sufficient interest in the old story for a modern audience. Mr. Zeus is all for it. He says to Mr. Nichols, there's always someone playing Job. Mr. Nichols agrees, although he wonders if he too still has a role to play. He'll say, there must be thousands, millions and millions of mankind, burned, crushed, broken, mutilated, slaughtered, and for what? For thinking, for walking around in the world in the wrong skin, the wrong shape, nose, eyelids, sleeping the wrong night in the wrong city, London, Dresden, Hiroshima. There never could have been so many, suffered more for less. But where do I come in? Now this is Mr. Zeus. All we have to do is start. Job will join us. Job will be there. Mr. Nichols again. I know, I know, I know. I've seen him. Job is everywhere we go. His children dead, his work for nothing. Counting his losses, scraping his boils, discussing himself with his friends and physicians. Questioning everything the times, the stars, his own soul, God's providence. So McLeish is reminding his audience, just as much as we need reminding today, there's always someone playing Job. I know, I know, I know, Job is everywhere we go. 
This is why I wanted to take us into the book of Job. This is why I started with the question, where is God in my suffering? This is what makes Job such hard and necessary reading, because we know him. We hear his cries from the streets, from the corners of the globe. So many of us are him. We have found ourselves on the ash heap of human existence, and we want to know, where are you, God, in my suffering? Or am I all alone? So last episode, if you recall, we ended in seven days of silence. There's a clear and important echo of creation here, as we've hovered over Job's tale. What was completed by God in seven days, now in a rush of suffering, will require seven days to process its collapse. The Eden of Job's existence has been reversed. Creation itself has fallen apart. What is one to do when creation has unraveled? This is one of the important questions of Job, and it's where we're going to focus this episode in Job chapter 3. If we ourselves find, like Job, that we are on the ash heap of human suffering, what is appropriate or even necessary in how we respond? The advice I've heard in contemporary Christian circles is that now would be a good time for Job to pour forth some praise. I often hear Job 121 possibly even reference, the Lord gives and the Lord taketh away. Or maybe that would pair nicely with a little Romans 8.28, for we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. From a casual outside perspective, this counsel seems like sound advice. Now is when Job doubles down on his faith, repeats the power mantras of those verses until he ceased to feel anything else, and he can finally dutifully move on with worship until God has blessed him again. For its contemporary feel, such advice is surprisingly ancient. As we'll soon discover, Job's friends offer him just such a path. Yet Job is about to walk a different way. This is what I want to draw attention to this episode. Though he first did offer forth a perspective of faith, he has now sat in silence for seven days. It's almost as if his silence has stirred up his pain. Many of the faithful who have suffered can understand Job's plight. The trauma of suffering leaves our system in shock. For those, like Job, who have committed their whole life to faith, our immediate response gravitates first towards that stabilizing force of praise. We've trained our hearts for just such moments when we too can speak like Job and cling to God through the rushing torrents of pain. Yet, if you've ever suffered deeply, you know that over seven days, instead of rushing by, pain often begins to settle into place. It's sediments, like deep pools of grief that start to settle in your soul. Instead of draining over time, we often find they become further blocked by those questions that remain. Job's heart, we will soon learn, is unable to drain its grief, for to do so would violate the very integrity of God's justice, God's promises, and God's presence that Job has staked his whole existence upon. This is the real journey of the sufferer on the ash heap. We'd prefer they move on or simply return to their faith, but something has shifted inside of Job. Instead of remaining silent forever or simply returning to his praise, he now chooses another way. He will speak his pain in lament. Before we look at Job's words, however, I think it'd be helpful to talk about lament. The concept of lament is deceptively simple. In over a third of the Psalms, there is this similar literary pattern where the psalmist is going to address God, state a protest, 
followed by a plea, and then conclude with a statement of trust. Four steps. Psalm 13 is the classic example. The psalmist will begin, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's his address to God. Then the psalmist will offer a protest. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? That was verse 1 to 2 of Psalm 13. And that's the second step, the protest. Now comes the third step. The psalmist will offer a plea. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This is followed by the fourth and final step, the statement of trust. Now, this is the significant moment in lament. Momentum so far has been desperation, even accusatory towards God. But suddenly, in the fourth step, your statement of trust, it's like the sun breaks through the clouds. The psalmist will see God, or maybe they simply remember their faith in God. Psalm 13, verses 5 to 6, will have this fourth statement of trust, and it says this, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. So did you catch all of that? Those four steps, the flow of lament, an address, a protest, a plea, and then a vision of faith and trust. This is powerful stuff. In fact, at the end of the episode, I can't help but want to be practical, and I'm going to encourage you as a pastor to continue on this journey with Joe by writing your own lament. This is the gift of what the psalmists are modeling, this biblical framing to speak boldly, courageously, to acknowledge the pain that has begun to pool in your own heart, and yet with the framing of faith, begin to remove those blocking dams so that the water can once again flow forth in praise. Who wouldn't want to use such a powerful gift? We desperately need it. Which is perhaps why lament has somewhat come in vogue recently. Maybe you've noticed this as well, but I've heard lament pop up in conversations on race, as a spiritual discipline to use during Lent, and as a way to respond to terminal diseases. In fact, if you just do a quick search of Christian publishers, who are always trying to keep up with the trends, there's a wide array of catchy titles all involving lament. I'm going to give you a couple that I found that have come out in just the last five years. One is called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament by Mark Frogot. Another is called Prophetic Lament, A Call for Justice in Troubled Times by Sung Chan Ra. Another is called From Lament to Advocacy, Black Religious Education and Public Ministry by Anne Wimberly. Or finally, there's Rejoicing in Lament, Wrestling with Incurable Cancer and Life in Christ by J. Todd Boylings. Now, I can throw the link in the episode description here for all of these, and to be honest with you, I personally love it. It's well time the church recovered this powerful biblical vision of speaking to God out of our pain, and I do think these titles show the helpful dynamism. Lament is a powerful and far-ranging tool. However, like anything that is popularized, I think there can be a danger here that even lament simply becomes a tool that is tamed. For that reason, I think Job 3 is going to invite us in to a far truer vision for the heart of lament. And here's where I need to prepare you. This vision of what lament actually is tends to be far more bold, far more draining, and far more uncomfortable than we'd prefer lament to actually be. 
Let's turn now to the words of Job 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. This is what it says. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Oh, every time I read those words, I feel my stomach drop. Job is locked in the deepest throes of agony. He's aggravated. He's scraping. He's tortuous in his pain. His lament, you may notice, opens with a curse, a pronouncement in which he wishes to enact that which he speaks. And his curse is directed to the very day of his birth. That's how the lament opens up. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. His imagery is going to linger here on the darkness of just such a desire that all the life he has lived, all the people he has loved, would be inhaled back into the black hole of nothingness that is the reversal of life. Let me keep reading. This is Job 3, 5-10. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. This is what's so powerful but so haunting about lament. It invites the power of poetry, the interplay of images. If Job started by reflecting on the day when he was born and wishes instead it would be night, he now will weave together the imagery of darkness and death in contrast to the illumination of light and birth. This all comes together in the middle of that section I just read, verse 7, where he'll say, Behold, Let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. This is a bleak curse from Job that wishes to reverse the creation and the light that came with it, that instead it would be consumed by darkness, just as his life has been consumed by death. In verse 9, he'll say, Let the stars on that very dawn be dark so that the eyelids of the morning do not open up. Job has seen things so horrendous that he wishes the light of his eyes had never had a chance to see that first day of his existence, that all would have remained in darkness instead. I mentioned at the start of this episode that it is as if Job wished to reverse creation itself. Michael Fishbane is a brilliant Jewish scholar over at the University of Chicago, and he's actually noticed that here... In Job 3, there's this tragic play on the creation account of Genesis 1, where in seven days, God repeatedly said, let there be, and would separate light from darkness, land from sea, day from night. In the Hebrew of Job 7, there are actually seven jussive curses. Let there be not 
in order to reverse the very fabric of existence. So Job will say, Let there not be day, and instead be darkness. Let gloom claim it. Let there not be stars, but instead may they be darkened. Let there not be the chaos of the sea, that the leviathan of the deep may be roused. You notice in Job 1 and 2, there was a contest on whether or not Job would bless or curse God. And what we found was that Job did in fact bless. But now Job has turned to cursing. It's unsettling. And while he's not cursing God directly, Job is cursing creation itself with God standing nearby. And you can't help but sense that Job is directing something towards God, wishing that the God who had allowed his life to be born would instead have prohibited creation itself from allowing him to experience such unending woes. There's something horribly honest about Job's words. Now, I don't endorse them. I don't know how you could. I'm also aware of the dangers of suicidal speech. The hospital might be a necessary place to contain Job's rage if you and I were sitting with him today. Yet, I've also tasted just enough suffering to understand why Job speaks with such violent images. His life has endured terrible violence, emotionally, bodily, spiritually. For him to use any softer words would be an untruth of their own. His words have not yet ended. If he started with a curse in verses 1 to 10, he will now pour forth this repeated existential angst in the question, why? Listen to this stretch of Job 3, 11 to 16. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet, I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold or filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together, and they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Job fantasizes about the relief of death. You catch him decrying the womb from which he wishes he would have simply expired, or the knees that were waiting there to receive him, or the breast that nursed him. Job pushes all of these intimate images away, wishing instead that he would have come horrifically as a stillborn child. I mean, this is, this is heavy language. It feels acutely offensive even, and yet as you hold the offense, it's important to remember the even more acute distress, the reality of Job's all-encompassing loss. He interestingly talks of sleep and quiet and rest that he thinks might be waiting for him in death. He gives us an insight into why he longs so much for that rest of death in verse 18. He'll say, There the prisoners 
are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. And then in verse 19, the small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. There's this interesting literary play taking place in the images that Job is giving us as to why his pain is so acute. If you recall at the beginning of the book of Job, we're told that God asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job? From God's perspective, to be a servant is a place of honor. For those who have distinguished themselves by serving God faithfully, the Bible will often refer to Moses as the servant of God and David as the servant of the Most High. Yet Job now finds his window to the world from the ash heap. And from this vantage point, what it means to be a servant looks very different. Job will say that in death, at least the slave is free from his master. Later on in verse 23, Job is going to say, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? This is the panic the suffocation, the suicidal despair that Job feels. He is not a servant, but a slave. God, who we were told in chapter 1, did keep a hedge of protection around Job. Job now feels to be hedged in by his suffering. Where once Job had been honored and revealed, Job now feels he is but a slave to God, there to be tormented endlessly in existence, and not even given the relief of death. He'll conclude his lament in verses 24 to 26 this way, For my sighings come instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. There is, here in Job's lament, no answer, no statement of faith. We are missing the fourth step. And instead, all we're given is this foreboding sense of trouble that has come. This is a good moment to check in on this study. I mentioned last week that if you were interested enough to listen to this podcast, there are probably questions that you're asking and answers you're hoping to be given. Many Bible studies try to offer us answers, but Job asks that we first begin, instead of with answers, by focusing on the reality of pain. The words of Job force you not to rush ahead to the redemption of faith, but instead to see the true brokenness of his tragedy. You can't escape to the comfort of faith yet. Instead, lament is this wounded cry of the soul that has gone through incredible agony. It's a necessary outlet for grief that, if otherwise contained, might cause permanent harm to your soul. This is the urgency to Job's words. They tear themselves from his lungs. They feel unstable. They're full of wild questions and even wilder accusations. They're turned inward on God who is supposed to be there for you. But this is lament. It's its gift. It's its power. Even as it's its unstable plea. It risks opening up the very wounds of doubt caused by your pain. Yet still it will assure you 
that if you lean in and if you speak, that eventually faith will come. This is the second step in a journey with Job. If last week we paused in silence at the ash heap, this is the week that we note that our pain must be spoken. Each of us must attempt in our own way to bring our pain before God. We must feel it in all its terror, fury, and rage. And trust. Trust that if our faith is true, our faith will hold. Trust Job that if Job is true, he will hold on. Trust that God, if God is true, then God will hold on to Job just as surely as God will hold on to us. Our temptation is to tell Job he should not speak until he can once again profess those niceties of faith and return to his praise. But what if instead Job must speak and we must listen? What if we must speak and offer up our own laments alongside the brokenness of Job's pain? There's an interesting lesson here in none other than C.S. Lewis. Lewis, of course, is the Oxford Don, former atheist turned Christian, who is known for his brilliant defenses of the faith, such as mere Christianity. He even wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, where he offers his own theodicy, a defense of how God could be good in the face of so much suffering and evil. And I have to say, it's, as with anything Lewis writes, brilliant. But 20 years after publishing The Problem of Pain, an unexpected tragedy in the form of his wife's death, whom he met late in life, fell in love with later still, and then only had three short years with, would sweep Lewis onto the ash heap of suffering like he had never experienced before. Over this time of grieving his wife's death, he gathered his thoughts in a series of notebooks and would publish it under a pseudonym with the title, A Grief Observed. It's interesting that the publishers and some of Lewis's friends were concerned as he published it about the stability of Lewis's own faith. Now, here's how Lewis opens the book. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I think that's precisely the terror of lament for Lewis and all others who attempt to gather up the words that express their grief to enter into the fields of faith that have so recently experienced devastation in order to explore what remains behind, is terrifying. The terror of lament is both that God allowed, or worse, that God was involved in the devastation that just took place. Lewis, later in the book, would later observe a very Job-like phrase. God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. Hilary Mantle, a literary critic for The Guardian, offers helpful insight here when she reflects on Lewis's journey. In a recent op-ed she wrote, about the power of a grief observed. She says, When Lewis wrote A Grief Observed, he did not objectify his grief in the language of psychology, but alternated between the terms available to, on the one hand, the spiritual seeker, and on the other hand, the stricken child. 
A grief observed is a loose description of an obscure, muddled process, a process almost universal, one with no logic and no timetable. I love that quote from Mantle because she captures precisely what takes place in Lament. It is an obscured and muddled process. It has no logic and timetable, and we find ourselves, like Lewis, alternating back and forth between the spiritual seeker and the stricken child. Yet I have to ask, how else could we return to God if we do not give space to feel the loss of what has occurred? How else do we bear testimony to the scars that remain even on our Savior's hands and feet? To journey with Job is costly. In studying this passage with one of my friends, he acknowledged that he felt profoundly uncomfortable at the words Job was speaking here. I think that that's right. A friend that cares would feel uncomfortable. Job has, in his lament, attempted to reverse his very own life. Friends who read C.S. Lewis's writings found themselves growing concerned about his faith, and the publishers worried the risks of his fans reading it. Yet what other option is there? To swallow our pain in silence? If we are to heal and once more grasp the very faith we seek, we must risk bearing the weight of uncomfortable speech. Job must be allowed to speak, and if we care about Job, we must listen and follow his example. Yet for others of us, this chapter in Job comes as a relief. We've lingered for so long in church halls that only sang forth praise that we did not know the Bible could speak such rawness of pain. If that's you, Job offers you an invitation. Lament is a gift. It is the poetic weaving of what otherwise could not be spoken in faith before God. It invites you to gather the pain that has welled up with you for so long and pour it out before your Creator. So this is where the pastor in me comes out. If you've never had the chance to do so before, I want to invite you to take a step of faith by writing out a lament. There's a study available at burningwordpodcast.com that gives you directions on how to do this in exercise two. Essentially, like Job, you're encouraged to gather together images, words, and phrases and craft them into a journey of an address, protest, plea, and if you're able, a statement of trust. Job only gets so far in his lament. And the same might be true for you as well. This exercise is most transformative when it is least perfected. Yet here's the hardest part. When you've had a chance to write it, I want to encourage you to share it with someone. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's someone who's working with you through your pain, like a counselor, a pastor. Preferably, unlike Job, you will be able to find someone who is truly safe who can hold the pain. Or maybe all you can muster right now is to simply read your lament out loud to God as a prayer. That too is a wonderful place to start. I want to encourage you though, that if we are to encounter God in our suffering, we must honestly speak our pain. This is John Perrine with The Burning Word. And until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.